to another edition of Tea with Nettie. My guest today is Catherine McIntosh, known to us all as Cat, who was one of our very first leaders when OAE started in 1986 and retired a few years ago. And it has been really wonderful to talk to her. She's so warm and entertaining, as you will hear, and to hear what path led her to OAE in the first place and what life after OAE is like. Um, from the sound of things, there's hope for us all. Tea with Nettie. lovely to be able to talk to you today and um, you are absolutely a founder member of the Orchestra of Age of Enlightenment and instrumental in its very continuing existence Um, and I just did a little bit of research on you before um, I, I feel I know you quite well but I thought I'd look you up and I discovered all sorts of things about your past that I hadn't even known about. I mean I didn't know that in 1967 you'd had a scholarship to Bruges to study violin, viola, viola de morium, viol. There, for there was a, a notice went up at the Royal College of Music in my in my third year, saying that they were looking for a uh, a, a player to, uh, to join a early music course in Bruges, and um, a, a, a treble viol player, I think, and I was just about a treble viol player at that time. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to go. And um, it turned out that it was a a rather marvellous course, which was open to people from every one of the European countries, including some of the the, uh, behind the Iron Curtain, as it was in those days. Um, And it was all paid for by the European community. Just briefly, can you um, expound for us how it was that your acquisition of Baroque repertoire was so chronological? Well, it was. I was so lucky because I don't think nowadays any of the, the younger players would have the chance that I did, which was to start off being encouraged to love early music by my music teacher at school, who happened to be the very famous composer Harrison Birtwistle. He uh, introduced me to uh, Monteverdi, um, medieval music, Josquin, Ochegem, Macho, and um, uh, rather uh, presciently, he uh, introduced me to lute songs sung by Julian Bream with Peter Pears and the Julian Bream consort, which many years later I became a part of myself. I went to Dartington for a year and um, did, did quite a lot of early music there. And then I went to the Royal College where I studied violin, normal violin, with uh, Eric Gronberg and Carl Pini and Sylvia Rosenberg. But the great thing for me was to be able to learn to play the treble viol. And that I did um, with Roddy Skeeping and became a great friend of the Skeeping family. I joined some early music groups at, just after I left college, amongst whom were Musica Reservata, 
um, David Munro's group, which I played as an occasional player. And uh, the, uh, Michael Morrow was an absolute pioneer in, in research into medieval music. And they had thought a lot about the kind of vocal sound that the singers would have had. I acquired various rebecks um, and, and, and viols I played a bit later. So th those days I was doing a lot of medieval music and early Renaissance music. And then I joined the English Consort of Viols and we played the absolute core repertoire of the English Golden Age. I more or less made my living as a treble viol player for a couple of years. You know, that music you're talking about was... It's such um, democratic music, isn't it, that all the parts are equally important. It's just wonderful. It's it's like a, a very civilised conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, talking about Gibbons and Jenkins and, well, Purcell, of course, and William Laws, who completely went sounded off the rails. I mean, I remember Francis Baines used to say that young virgins should be locked up after hearing William Laws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so that that was... The, the beginning of my my sort of chronological musical journey um, in that I, I started with medieval music, then Renaissance music. We played Purcell in some of these groups. And then Christopher Hogwood um, started the Academy of Ancient Music before David Munro died, actually. Um, and uh, David had sort of put his toe in the water with baroque music and conducting and that sort of thing but really he was happiest I think communicating with audience in that brilliant way that he had surrounded by about 15 pipes and shawms and recorders of various sorts and, and Chris Hogwood sort of took over the mantle in a way. They were both wonderful communicators weren't they verbally? They were absolutely marvellous and Chris's idea was to was to start playing orchestral music um, with the right kind of instruments, the right kind of um, numbers of people playing in the group, the right kind of bows. We did one project by music by Georg Muffat, um, and we actually had bows made. They were not very sophisticated bows, but they were very short, and, and it was the first time that we tried to do French-style uh, bowing. It was actually quite successful. I remember the first time I tried a, a short bow, I just kept sort of misjudging and going off the end. It was a bit like when you just had your hair cut and you comb your neck by mistake. Just a, just very I, I had some lessons with Sylvia Rosenberg a few years after I left college to sort of get my modern violin playing back up to the right kind of decibel level because of course I was used to playing instruments which didn't sound very loud. Anyway, Sylvia was wonderful, but she, she spotted my Baroque bow in my violin case. Oh, can I have a go at that, Catherine, she said. And um, she, she did exactly what you've just described. <laughs> she did a long, a rather fruity down bow, and the bow s snapped down on her priceless instrument. I don't know if it was a strat. And many years later... Um, after she'd gone to live in, in the States again, I was doing a programme, television programme with Chris Hogwood, and it was two groups. It was the Academy of Ancient Music and the New York Chamber Society, which was a, a chamber music uh, played on modern instruments. And one of the things that we did was the Chris Hogwood's arrangement of the concerto by Bach, H.A.S. Bach, 
um, for three violins, um, which is known better known as for three harpsichords, but Chris con constructed it again for three violins. And there is one which a lot of people play, but it's it's using all the notes that Bach used for the three harpsichord version. But a few months later, after this program had gone out nationwide on American television, I had a call from Sylvia Rosenberg saying how much she'd enjoyed oh, it. Oh, how wonderful! Anyway, before we go on to the Academy of Ancient Music, I happen to know that you were an earlier member of Roger Norrington's Schutz Choir as well, weren't you? Which is yet another aspect of your musical past. Well, I did a lot of singing at school and I didn't really want to stop singing and I knew Roger Norrington through family connections, actually, um, and he very kindly let me join his choir. And I learned a tremendous lot about s phrasing from Roger. To go back to the Academy of Ancient Music, I think what made an incredible difference to the state of the period instrument movement in Britain was the fact that Christopher Hogwood was the first person to get a recording contract, in this case with Decca. Well, it did. And um, I mean, people say that, that, that my generation was the first, which is by no means true, because there were lots and lots of people um, interested in early music and, and doing research um, so in Britain, mainly started by Arnold Dolmetsch, but the Skeeping family that I mentioned um, also played a, a lot and did a lot of research into instrumental techniques. These were mostly amateurs um, who were interested in early music. And um, so our generation, who are now called pioneers, weren't really pioneers. We're, we were just taking it into the professional field so that recording uh, contract that you mentioned is, was absolutely crucial. Thanks to Decca with Peter Wadland and um, Chris's amazing um, sort of flowering of, of, of interest in quite unusual composers that weren't normally heard on, on recordings. Um, and I think um, we, were, we were so lucky. And it upped our game technically too, didn't it? Seeing somebody of not extremely academic bent myself, I found that the practicality of actually doing it and finding out what the bows did and, you know, tr tr uh, using gut strings and realising what makes a gut string sing, what makes it vibrate how to actually initiate the sound um, and use the articulated silences to make the speaking of the music make sense. It was so interesting and I, I, still, I still try and do that now. So many students over the years that um, have come through your influence and enthusiasm and all this, um, you say you're not of an academic bent, I mean I'm not either, but you were so enthusiastic and interested, you did a lot of reading and experimenting, didn't you? And that, and then you were able to pass it on. And, and at the colleges, that was only just beginning then, wasn't it? We had a little Baroque orchestra which met every uh, Monday afternoon and um, so all the way through the term. And there weren't quite enough students in any one college to make up 
the numbers for a Baroque orchestra. So, so we gleaned people from the Academy and Guildhall and Trinity. I, I really loved working with students. Um, it's much scarier to work with professionals because... <laughs> <laughs> and I also taught at the Royal Scottish Academy, which was very open to early music. In fact, they, um, they had the first programme for everybody in year two to have some lessons on the equivalent uh, uh, um, Baroque instrument. How brilliant! I think Scottish folk fiddling has a lot of aspects in common, doesn't it, with, with playing the Absolutely Baroque Absolutely does, yes. In 97, I, I went to a, a marvellous course in California, um, which was uh, folk fiddling. It was so very interesting, actually, to compare and contrast. And the, the thing that was most useful for me was that you were not allowed any written music on the site. You had to um, just pick it up by ear. Being an orchestral musician by training, I was pretty bad at that. I mean, I, I could do improvisations, embellishments. I, I, I could yes. cope with that. But actually learning whole tunes from by ear was such a good training. And then when I went back to the teaching at Royal College, I, I tried to introduce that. That's so important. What I do with my students, I take Kreutzer's study number two, and they have to be able to play it in any key I ask for. Jumping forward to um, the mid-1980s, um, I'd just like to ask you about the starting of OAE. I mean, we know that Tim Mason was one of the instigators, cellist Tim Mason, but um, would you like to just tell us a bit about how it started? It was, um, it was at a time when I think those of us who'd been in Baroque orchestras um, had been doing it with the same directors for about 15 years. Not that we didn't respect our directors, but we needed to have more input, really, yes. to explore this repertoire and perhaps start pushing it to, out towards a, a, a later historical period. And so it was a kind of a, a natural feeling amongst quite a few of us that we needed to found a new orchestra and, and not have just one figurehead. We were very lucky to find... Um, through a, 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 a connection with one of my husband's relations, actually, to a, a, somebody who was prepared to really put his enthusiasm and funding behind it in Bankers Trust. And that led to other people um, in the, the banking world, uh, finance world, to join the, the, the board. Yes. And we all sat round the table and thought, what, what can we call this orchestra? And... The Age of Enlightenment came up um, after a few others, which I can't remember what they were, and we thought that sounded good. So the first few years, we were known as the AOE. But for some reason or other, and I can't remember how, it, they reckoned it had to be called the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, which confused a lot of people because it suddenly became the OAE. <laughs> we had a, a, a marvellous time at the beginning just... Uh, inviting all our favourite people to come and direct us. Yeah, it was fantastic that we had this um, vehicle. It was our own orchestra and we 
had we could invite who we wanted and they had to behave themselves if they wanted to be invited again but it was so wonderful wasn't it to be able to invite people from Belgium and Holland which was at that time the absolute bedrock of period Belgium and Holland playing. yes and the funny thing was that a lot of people in Belgium and Holland were not terribly complimentary about the English way of playing. Yes. So I think it was interesting that both Bruggen and Leonhardt agreed to be such, su- such linchpins in those early days. And we certainly learned an awful lot from them. They had come from their long-practised um, ways of playing, and so we learnt that kind of technique from them. And then, of course, Simon Rattle came along with his fantastic flair, enthusiasm and joy of music-making. And then uh, Charles McCarris, who was very well-versed in in historical um, knowledge about uh, Baroque practices, but hadn't actually done much work with with an orchestra actually played on gut strings. And um, he, w- he was so respectful of us. I admired him and, and liked him so much. Um, uh, what I chiefly admired about him, actually, was that, that he had such a clear way of moving. Um, he didn't need to talk so much in a rehearsal. He would only um, talk about things which had gone wrong uh, that he wanted to put right. His musical mind and his physical gestures were so well aligned that it was perfectly clear to us. But then we got violinist directors like Sigiswald and he taught us so much about articulation and bow speed. Especially in French music, which was a style actually not really uh, assimilated at all into into the British. In spite rock. of Lena Lalande's efforts with her Ramo Yes, operas. indeed, and, and I'm sure people who played for her must have learned an awful lot. I didn't play for her very much, but I did a bit. And alongside the OAE, you you started your own group, didn't you? Your own trio sonata group. I did. Group. Yes. Well, I, I I've been playing trio sonatas a lot, um, really, from after I left college uh, with Chris Hogwood. And um, he he did a whole series of the trio sonata on the BBC. Um, And then in 1984, I think it was, um, Richard Boothby and Robert Woolley, gamba and harpsichord players, asked me if I would like to start a group um, which explored the repertoire of trio sonatas which was the string quartet of its day really and who would I like to play with so I said I would like to play with Elizabeth Lowellfish please and um, we we so we started the Purcell Quartet and we made over 40 recordings really 40 we really recorded all the the, the great famous collections of trio sonatas. The thing about the Purcell Quartet that was that it really fed my my baroque soul and um, and and you did things like Monteverdi operas, didn't you? You took Orfeo on tour, didn't you, with Mark Padmore? I we did, yes. Um, in Japan, we had a wonderful agent called Mr. Ogawa, and he managed to find enough money to bring sm- a small opera company, including you know, uh, lighting and uh, production and costumes. Um, We did 
three operas in Japan toured them. They were all actually wonderful to do. But Orfeo was an interesting experiment because we were all involved, even the players, in the production on stage, as it were. So we had to learn the whole opera by memory. And I suppose all that going on at the same time as OAE, you know, all the um, directing, because a lot of the time OAE um, worked without a conductor, and that was quite unusual, wasn't it? I I really enjoyed doing that. But the the collegiate atmosphere of of playing in the OAE has always been very strong, and each person contributes hugely. Simon Rattle is someone who's very, very good at reminding us to play to the strengths and weaknesses of the acoustic we're in, isn't he? And Ivan Fisher's another one who does that. He he spends a lot of rehearsal time on the day of the concert out there in the auditorium, really trying to gauge what experience the audience will have rather oh, than... Oh, he's a great person to play for, isn't oh, he's he? he's wonderful, yes. One of the great musical moments of my whole career was when we were doing Beethoven Five in the Festival Hall. And after the wonderful um, Timp's crescendo just before the last movement starts, when everybody's sort of getting so excited, I suddenly looked up when the tune starts and the trombonists were all standing up. They suddenly leapt to their feet and played da-dee-da. Do you remember in the rehearsal where he... He said, I have an idea. And he went to express to them that he wanted them to stand up. And I have a horrible feeling that the reaction was not very positive because a minute later he was striding back, you know, with a brow like thunder. Why are they always so bloody miserable? (laughs) But he persuaded them to do it. (laughs) It was fantastic. It was really fantastic. Yes, I I agree. It was thrilling. Didn't you um, take up the trombone and, and... we sponsored you to to take an associated board exam in aid of a charity. I can't remember what the charity was. The charity was Clarence Adu, the trumpeter. He is a wonderful guy, Clarence. Um, and he went on after this terrible accident um, when he became, I'm not sure whether paraplegic is, is the right word, but um, his his head and mind were absolutely fine. He worked for the... CBSO, but this, the, the tragedy was that he had no um, insurance and so he relied on his wonderful colleagues and friends to to help him get through this the, the treatment and everything. I just thought if I can make a few quid out of practising my trombone. Um, actually, I did quite well because I, I did get a higher mark for that exam than I've ever got in any of my violin exams because I practice more. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've got loads of money. Oh, fantastic. So life after OAE, I mean, you, you've been playing string quartets and um, you're passionate about tennis and you're a demon scrabble player. What I mean... It seems that your life is just as full since um, you retired from OE as it was when you remember. What 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 else are you up to? Oh, and your grandmother, of course, several times. Oh yes, well we go to New Zealand every year to see wow. um, our daughter Elsie, who lives there, and her three gorgeous, gorgeous little girls. The youngest one is called Sophie, and she she likes doing violining. It, I found it very difficult since the lockdown because um, you know there's this time lag and. 
Um, so we've stopped doing violining for the moment, but um, she reckons that um, she's going to be a violinist. I love um, doing um, my quartets, which I which I play with three ex-OAE players, Jan Schlapp, Colin Kitching and Timothy Kramer. At the moment I'm doing Duolingo Russian, because I did Russian at school, I did A-level Russian. You know, this is 50 years ago and I've forgotten it all. What else do I do? I, I, I like cooking a bit. Um, you say tennis, well I'm actually not really able to play tennis anymore, I've just had a, a hip replacement, so I'm not, not very good on the tennis court, I, I hadn't even tried. And what was the other thing you said I did? Oh, Scrabble. Well, I did do Scrabble online for a while, but I, I discovered that my friend Cathy Weiss is so much better than me that I was getting a bit demoralised. So I... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh Kat. It's, well, I think we probably ought to draw this to a close. It's so lovely to talk to you, and it's lovely to see you. I, actually, at the moment, I can only see one eye and two teeth. You, you, oh, that's better. <laughs> Thank you.